and welcome to the Swiss Connection. I'm Susan Masika. Every four years, the Red Cross movement gathers in Geneva for its General Assembly, a meeting that brings together every national Red Cross or Red Crescent Society, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and government ministers. They typically discuss aid policy along with the challenges and risks of humanitarian work. At the latest assembly, they talked about how to remain neutral and impartial in the face of anti-terror laws. Aid agencies say that these well-intentioned policies could seriously limit their humanitarian work. For this episode of our Inside Geneva series, correspondent Imogen Folks delved deeper into this tricky topic, along with Tristan Ferrero of the ICRC, Duncan McLean of Doctors Without Borders, and Daniel Warner of the Graduate Institute. Welcome to Inside Geneva. We're recording this month's edition in the week when the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Red Cross Federation have been holding their General Assembly. It only takes place once every four years. Um, it's a really very important venue to talk about the issues and challenges for humanitarians and the work they do. Now, some of the things that have been discussed have been integrity and shrinking space and counterterrorism legislation. What I want to do first, because we always hear a little something before we start talking, is play you the ideal of what humanitarian work is. This is, this is from a video produced by the Red Cross Federation this year. Serving those in need all over the world, the most vulnerable people, the hardest to reach. Protection and restoring the dignity of people all over the world. We are there before, during and after crisis. We are part of the communities we serve. We walk the last mile. We are everywhere for everyone. Everywhere for everybody. Is that the case with humanitarian work? in the 21st century, and if not, why not? What's hindering it? We're going to focus specifically on that issue of counterterrorism legislation. I'm joined by Tristan Ferrero, who is Senior Legal Officer with the International Committee of the Red Cross, and Duncan McLean, who is a researcher with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières. Some of you may know that better as Doctors Without Borders. And, of course, Daniel Warner, our uh, devil's advocate, historical perspective analyst-in-chief. Um, Tristan and Duncan, I'm going to start with you first, Tristan. You've both worked in the field, in conflict zones, in situations that some of our listeners may be shocked that you ever got involved in in the first place. Um, tell me about one of them, Tristan. I think one of them, which is an important one for me because it was my first mission abroad for the IHRC, was when I was deployed in 2002 in Afghanistan, uh, covering central region of Afghanistan, in which we had to reach out a very important uh, uh, situation where a population was really suffering, and some of the parts in which I was operating were, uh, were under the responsibility, the control of uh, the armed opposition, in particular under the control of groups that have been designated as terrorists. And I would say this is one of the, my most important and most marking uh, situation in which I have been deployed in. Duncan? Yeah, there's a, a fair few contexts that required um, negotiations with those that are that 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 certainly today will be referred to as terrorists. Uh, I was I was struck by a, 
a fairly uh, lengthy stay in, in Nepal um, in the, the mid-2000s um, that essentially involved uh, uh, negotiating with what the government perceived as terrorists, uh, the Maoist um, uh, movement um, in the hinterland, um, but simultaneously negotiating, of course, with the authorities to, to, to basically uh, obtain a, um, a parallel access um, and literally moving back and forth between the, between the front lines. Uh, and I'm struck by that because in that, at least in that particular context, uh, um, uh, it was certainly not, not an easy task, but... Um, but we were eventually able to to obtain that access, and I'm not sure in the context of 2019 whether it will be whether I'd be able to say the same thing. Explain to our listeners, because some already will be thinking it's the army's job or it's the government's job to get hold of these groups and either defeat them or imprison them, and that something like the Red Cross or MSF really has no business getting involved. And now I know this is basic here in Geneva, but some people don't understand that. Yeah, uh, I think our role is mainly, as you you know, uh, to reach out population that needs as a result of armed conflict. And in order to reach out this population, we need to talk to everybody, to all the belligerents involved, irrespective of their designation, irrespective of their label, and irrespective of what they do in the field. Even if they commit violation of international humanitarian law, our role in order to access the area in which uh, we want to operate, in order just to fulfill the needs of the population, we need to discuss with uh, these individuals and our role is only aimed at fulfilling this mandate and if this, this mandate requires to engage with stakeholders, with belligerents, which sometimes have been labelled and as terrorists and engage in the worst act uh, possible. But this is our role to do so to reach out our population. You know, humanitarianism comes from the word human uh, and you're still dealing with people. But my real point is when you talk about groups, terrorist groups, in fact... They're the problem or part of the problem, but they're also part of the solution. So whereas you think you can defeat them or make believe that they're going to go away, you have to negotiate with them in order to have some kind of solution, either politically or just for people, civilians who are suffering. So on the political side, um, it's, it's, it's in a sense, it's an easy opt-out, but, but obviously as a humanitarian organization uh, with the basic principles of impartiality, neutrality, independence, and so on, uh, to engage them in terms of a political solution is not really our job, but certainly to engage with them to be able to access those areas where there are people that would need the type of care that we can offer um, for the security of our, our, our own teams, um, this, is, this is absolutely necessary. And, and if we don't have that, um, it essentially cuts off uh, significant chunks of a, of a, of a population um, that we simply cannot, we cannot provide any support. I mean, one of the arguments against talking to these groups is that you give them legitimacy. In other words, they become a quasi-governmental organization. But as you said, isn't it necessary to talk to them to help the civilian populations? Yeah, it's not only uh, necessary to help uh, to to talk to them to help the civilian population. What is also very important is to be able to reach out these individuals and to go into the area in which they operate, also to ensure the security of our staff. Because we will not able to deliver our humanitarian activities if we are not able also to ensure the security of our staff. These are two uh, faces uh, of the of the same coin, and that's once again the reason for which we need to uh, to talk to this group. Once again, irrespective of their label and irrespective of the cause that they are exposing, really, because for us it's really in the political realm, and we are not interested in in uh, uh, being in, uh, engaged in these political debates. I would also argue that the, this point about giving legitimacy to to armed groups, terrorists, um, and, and otherwise, 
this is something that's been repeated again and again and again in 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 uh, in history. And if we we look back at the the Geneva Conventions um, pre nineteen forty nine and also mm-hmm. nineteen forty nine and the additional protocols, I mean they were, they've been extended to uh, situations of civil war, of domestic um, uh, armed conflict, for a reason. Uh, and of course, this is always going to include uh, in the context of conflict armed armed groups um, that are somehow looking for for legitimacy. Um, I'm not sure that humanitarians that are in the case of MSF that are providing medical care, um, are, are going to change the, the scope and shape of the, of the conflict. That's going to come from elsewhere. Tristan, you were. Yeah, just to, to, to bounce on, on, on what Justin uh, Kant said, what is also important to underline that to engage with this group designated as terrorists is not only necessary for us, but it's a task, a mandate that has been assigned to us by state under the Geneva Convention. So it's not something that we have decided to do by ourselves. It's also something that has been accepted by state for us to do in order to deliver our mandate. And just without going into legal argument, but there is a very important uh, provision under international humanitarian law, which is common article free covering non-international armed conflict, which clearly specifies that the applicability of IHL and the humanitarian activities delivered by impartial humanitarian organizations just like us does not confer any kind of legitimacy with mm-hmm. the non-state armed groups we are engaging with. One of the things, though, about counterterrorism legislation is not, it's not really just that you talk to people who others might class as terrorists. Some would say when you go in and you're delivering medical supplies, when you are delivering food, when you are treating people, that you are, to use a not very kind phrase, aiding and abetting. And that does lie behind some of this this legislation. Certainly not all countries are pleased that you talk to some of these groups or individuals and you run risk not only for your personal safety but also you can be arrested uh, in certain countries if you talk to certain groups who are labeled terrorists. How do you get around that problem? First of all, I think to be very clear, there is only a very few states that are criminalizing the simple fact to talk to non-state armed groups. In the vast majority of the counterterrorism legislation, what is prohibited and punished under those laws is the support to this group, material, of course, material support, which is very often interpreted in a very broad way that could encompass basic activities we have been assigned to under the Geneva Convention. And when I say we, I, I think also it's not only the IHRC, but also any organization that is acting according to the principle of humanitarian action. So, so I think, and, and I, I'm very certain that it goes far beyond um, ICRC and, and MSF, uh, I, I think we're quite aware of our responsibility in terms of the misuse of, of the, uh, the aid that we provide. Uh, and again, we're, we're speaking about the specific context of counterterrorism, but it, it's, a, it's a responsibility that we have to, to, to our donors, to our colleagues, staff, um, and patients themselves. But to come back to your, your specific point, in a clinic, in a hospital, you, you, you see a patient. You don't see a patient that belongs to organization group uh, X, Y, or Z. It's a patient. Um, and that, and that, that is very clearly you, defined in, under international humanitarian law. But also, you basically operate like any doctor is supposed to. You see the patient, not their background. I don't think it's uh, it's reasonable to expect the uh, medical staff to make that that distinction, and that's and that's not just referring to sort of legal provisions um, in terms of a lot of words, but basic medical ethics as well um, that 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 our staff have to subscribe to. But do you think you're winning this debate with the, with governments and the general public? 
I think we are trying actually to do our utmost in order to familiarize sorry, uh, the, the public but also the government to our argument, in particular the necessity for us to operate in accordance to the mandate that have been assigned to us. And I think one of our roles is first of all, and that's what we do, in particular in a bit more vocal way in the last uh, two years, simply because uh, we have been more and more, we as I shall see, more and more affected by this criminal uh, legislation that have been drafted for counter-tourism purposes. And what we are just, first of all, just trying to make the, the government and the population understand is, first of all, the effect of this counter-tourism legislation on our operation. Because the very first thing that we need to win in this discussion is to make sure that states and stakeholders understand that the counter-tourism legislation they have drafted mostly not uh, uh, for just putting the humanitarian in a difficult situation. That's really the reality. Very often, the impact of, uh, on our humanitarian operation are side effects, adverse effects, but are not the primary objective of criminal legislation. Danny, you're waiting patiently over no, there. No, because I, I just was wondering, you go someplace where there's a conflict to do what you do. Do you get the government's permission from that country? Or could you ever go into a situation or stay there where the government doesn't want you to be there? So I think this is this is an interesting point that that I, the ICRC and MSF have not always taken the same. We, we we we've we've differed on on this point. Um, no, so so we talk about working in an in an area of of, of conflict. Um, I mean, you're you're. you're in, in pure finite terms, you're under the sovereignty of the state, but we know very well in practice parts of that territory will be, because of the conflict itself, will be controlled by other groups. So our preference is to negotiate with all sides, um, but uh, I can say very bluntly, we're not always successful um, and we have refused access by the state concerned. And so we find other forms of accessing populations that are that are in distress, um, which essentially is the the, the, the basis of, of sans frontierisme, uh, cross border operations. Um, and certainly, an obvious example more recently is in is is in Syria. But that's certainly not uh, only MSF that is doing that, um, and not only non governmental organizations. Uh, this is this is something that the UN has authorized as well. Um, After but a long hesitation. Uh, yeah, I think we could do a, another another podcast on, on that specific topic. But the, but the point but the point being is that we have a preference of how we would um, obtain access. But if we if we if we cannot, um, we are willing to consider other other options. We are a bit more nuanced approach. But I think for us, first of all, we prefer to have the consent of all the belligerents involved in in the armed conflict. But we are operating also under the framework of international humanitarian law. And as you know, the ICRC is a guardian of international humanitarian law and the interpretation of international humanitarian law is to say when we want to operate in a territory, we need to have, legally speaking, the consent of the territorial authority, but also as a matter of policy and for operational and practical reason, we need also to operate with the consent of the non-state armed groups in which, uh, in which we would like to, to operate. But legally speaking, we think that we are, we are obliged to seek and obtain the consent of the territorial authorities, meaning the, the effective government in place. Let's have a look at one specific proposed legislation which a few countries have been having a look at, and that is to make it a criminal offence for one of their citizens to go to a designated terrorist area. So maybe we could talk northeast Syria at the moment, for example. And now, to a lot of people, that looks very sensible because it's trying to, these governments say, prevent their citizens becoming foreign fighters. Britain's looked at this. Holland is looking at it. 
Do you see pitfalls there for humanitarian workers? It's, uh, I, I, in my answer, it's not questioning the security prerogatives of the state. Uh, that, that's actually not our business, but very clearly without a, a, some type of exemption for humanitarian activities, um, very much as, as we've been describing. Yes, that, that is absolutely a pitfall because uh, on top of the, the challenges of negotiating access with, with those parties that control the territory, so again, terrorist groups as in the context of the discussion today, um, we're also being criminalized by the states um, from outside the territory itself. So, so of course, yeah, there's a very obvious pitfall um, and, and creating a situation that is, again, more difficult than it already is today. I think on all sides, just uh, in a similar way, the ICRC has never challenged the necessity and the legitimacy of states to take measures to ensure the resp- uh, their, their security. And this can take the form of counterterrorism legislation. But what we need also to counter is also the unintended effect of this counterterrorism legislation. And for this specific law, so-called designated area, where it's prohibited for an individual to go in an area that has been designated uh, as prohibited by a government, uh, we see that without any humanitarian carve-outs within this legislation, there is a risk of humanitarian workers being criminalized for the simple fact to be present in the area that has been designated. And in order to avoid the adverse effect of such legislation, we at the ICRC, but we are not the only one, and we are coordinating our efforts with a lot of humanitarian organizations, we try to persuade governments and parliaments to make sure that in such legislation, which once again is legitimate, there is some what we call well-framed humanitarian exemption that would allow humanitarian workers operating according to the principle of governing humanitarian action to be able to carry out their activities in these areas. But yeah. in the United States, it is illegal to give material support to a terrorist organization or a potential terrorist organization. How does one define material support? Normally, this should be defined uh, by the legislation concern in accordance with the international obligation binding the states taking this kind of uh, material supports. And we are engaged with many states actually to make sure that this kind of legislation that are more and more implemented at domestic level by states because of Security Council resolution, by the way, uh, needs to make sure that when they are developing this kind of legislation, they also take into account and act in conformity of their obligation under international humanitarian law. And under international humanitarian law, there is an obligation to allow and facilitate humanitarian action. And we can also... The risk of overgeneralizing speaks specifically about what does what does material support actually imply because it's it's generally kept um, very very vague and so of course uh, states which is understandable uh, leave it at their own discretion to enforce it um, and that that again is problematic as well uh, when you have very vague terminology what what actually falls under um, material support is it is it running a, a hospital in in territory that's controlled by whatever armed group terrorist group that we're speaking about. I mean, is that is that what we're considering terrorist uh, um, material support to terrorism? That- also, who's a terrorist? Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm a journalist. I ask these questions. But you are operating in a system where it's the government who decides what material support is and the government who decides who a terrorist is. And you're on the ground in conflict zones trying to be humanitarians. Well, but but that, that's, I mean, that gets to a bit of a, a the crux of, of an old but still quite pertinent debate today. It's, it's, it's sort of the, the, the right or wrong of a, of, of a conflict and how you label the participants. I mean, that's, that's absolutely not, not our job. I mean, we're operating in the reality uh, and the consequences of those, of those, of those labels. Um, but who today this labeled terrorist uh, 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 30 years ago, uh, seditious rebels, uh, that, that's, that's what we are dealing with in practical terms. Let's 
come back, we strayed a little far, but let's come back specifically to this counterterrorism issue before we wind up because we're getting close to the end of our time. What I want to ask you both is, is it actually stopping you doing things? Maybe not the law itself, but the fear of the consequences of the new legislation or decreasing funds. Are donors doing a bit, mm, that seems a bit dodgy to me, I'd rather invest in something nice and some nice, cheerful, peaceful place that maybe doesn't need the money as much, but I'll be safe if I invest in that. You're right. And I would say that's why the IHRC for the last two years, we have decided to engage stakeholders to be more vocal in the public audience because we have felt the constraint of counterterrorism legislation, but not only counterterrorism legislation in the form of criminalizing our action, but also the difficulty to have access to funding because more and more funding of some important donors are linked to respect of counterterrorism legislation, which of course has an impact of our, on our principal humanitarian action. But we see also more and more the effects of sanction regime, in particular sanction regime whose objective is to countering terrorism. And the combined effect of these uh, three aspects of legislation have clearly directly impacted the ICRC operation. And what we say also to stakeholders that if we have been impacted with as ICRC, the other human organizations have been even more impacted than the ICRC and there is a need to find solution to this situation. Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, when when we try to access a, a, an area of territory, you refer you, you, we're going to refer perhaps to the recent um, communication by MSF on uh, on the impact of counterterrorism legislation in, in in Nigeria. It is not only because of counterterrorism legislation in Nigeria that we cannot access significant parts of the northeast, um, but that is uh, clearly a. a, a an important factor in that lack of access. Um, we have to also look at the other side and the challenges of negotiating with those groups. But, but absolutely, I mean, and, and when you have a, a territory that is largely controlled, um, especially outside of the, the urban centers, uh, by in this case, what is being clearly labeled a terrorist group, um, and we cannot go into those areas either um, because of the Nigerian military or um, because we can simply not um, contact those groups themselves, uh, yeah, it's problematic because we can't reach the majority of the population with the, with the medical care that uh, we have available and would be able to offer. So, and so, they yeah. need it. If the situation on those in the areas uh, where we can actually access as, as any indicator to the other, other parts of the province, yes, uh, absolutely need it. Danny, what should they do negotiating perhaps with the, with the government says, no, you just can't go there? Well, you know, if I go back to the Battle of Solferino and Henri Dunant, which was the beginning of the Red Cross, I mean, it was both sides they took care of. There was a distinction between the civilians and the army, but still both sides were looked after. And it seems to me we're in such a politicized atmosphere today that to be neutral, independent, is almost impossible. And as soon as you talk about terrorists, you're already making an ethical decision about who those people are. So immediately people are going to say, why do you talk to them? Why do you help them? You're giving them support. Uh, and it's very difficult to overcome that today. It's, it's, it's really uncomfortable to sort of debate, under, not, not because of what you said, but in that frame, because it's, it's really a, a misconception of what humanitarian aid uh, intends to do. It's not just about not being political and supporting one side or the other, uh, precepts of neutrality, uh, reciprocity in terms of caring for wounded. It's humanitarian. We're, we're not going to change the shape of a contact. We're, we're applying Band-Aids. I mean, hopefully very needed Band-Aids, but that's, that's what we do. And you oblige us to take a political position, um, 
we are as at risk as as those who are who are engaging directly in the fighting, and we become a target ourselves. It, it's it's a misconception that uh, exaggerates the potential impact. Um, we're there to alleviate human suffering, do our best, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes we could do a lot better, um, but we're certainly not going to shape the political future of the conflict and certainly not enter the debate. The humanitarian should be absolutely excluded from that. Tristan, final word from you. The final word would be uh, just a call to governments. And uh, we are actually uh, working with, inter with international humanitarian actors to make sure that governments we know uh, take mitigating measures in order to uh, really just nuance the effects and the side effects of counterterrorism measures. There is a sufficient um, um, number of clearly evidence that we are directly impacted by this. Some states start to realize uh, the side effects of their legislation. They need to find with us mitigating measures to help us to carry out the mandates that, once again, they have assigned us to do under the Geneva Conventions. Daniel Warner, Tristan Ferrero and Duncan McLean, thank you very much for joining us. A lot of food for thought there and maybe for government leaders looking for maybe short-term headlines about doing something about terrorism. If you're ever caught up in a war zone, you'd probably be very glad to see Duncan or Tristan and not question why they're doing what they're doing. That was Imogen Folks in Geneva, which is home to the headquarters of about 40 international organizations and 32,000 diplomats and civil servants. Visit us at swissinfo.ch for more stories about them and the work that they do. We produce this podcast every few weeks, so check back soon or follow us on Twitter or Facebook to hear about the next one. Even better, subscribe to The Swiss Connection to be sure that you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to studio technician Donnie Wehler. Signing off for all of us here, I'm Susan Masika. Hello, I'm Imogen Folks from Swiss Info's Inside Geneva podcast. On February 24th, 2022, Russia attacked Ukraine. The invasion caused Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II. And during the year-long conflict, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people, soldiers and civilians, have been killed. Over the past year, a number of episodes of Inside Geneva have looked at the heavy humanitarian toll of the war – and its wider implications for the world. We've been joined by historians and international human rights experts to ask about the background to the invasion. We've talked to major UN aid agencies about how the war in Ukraine is impacting other humanitarian crises. And we've asked if sanctions or war crimes investigations can stop or at least limit this conflict. If you're particularly concerned by the war in Ukraine... Do listen to these episodes. You can find Inside Geneva, free to listen, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all your usual podcast apps.